Hello there, this interview that you're about to hear was originally done by me, Sam Roscoe or Chris Prince for the Blue Moon podcast sometime between 2009 and now. That means if there's anything that sounds a bit out of date or if there's anything that's an obvious topic that we've not asked the guest about, it's probably because the interview is from a long time ago. This show is basically the Blue Moon podcast interview archive. All of the new interviews that we do with former City players and managers will go live on the Blue Moon podcast first, so if you like what you hear then please go and subscribe to that and there's a new show every Friday with a look at everything on and off the pitch for City. But for now enjoy the end of this generic recorded message and enjoy the interview with the person whose name is in the title of this episode. Well I've been a Newcastle fan from the age of three from a time in Newcastle when you come from uh, from where I come from the east end of Newcastle as soon as you you're able to walk your dad throws you a ball and you support Newcastle United that's it's a one one club city. Um, so that I played for Newcastle schoolboys all my school days, captain my school team, Newcastle schoolboys. But um, you know, that in those times, the football clubs were looking to take on apprentices at fifteen, uh, and I was always a centre forward, captain of the team, but never never grew very much as you developed through the ages of fourteen and fifteen. And Newcastle sort of rejected me at fifteen. They'd been watching me from the age of twelve uh, as a centre forward scoring goals, and then at fifteen they uh, they said I wasn't big enough and strong enough to uh, to take them on an apprenticeship but by this time the Newcastle schoolboys team um, still wanted me in the team but we had a big bustling centre forward uh, from a year younger who could play centre forward and uh, because we, Newcastle schoolboys had a good right winger they threw me in the left wing so I was ahead of my time I was the, the first left right footed left winger which nowadays is what the modern modern players are doing so from then on I went back to school to take some more GCSEs and um, someone had a very famous youth scout called Charlie Ferguson and my school teacher uh, at the time was Bob Madison at Manor Park School in uh, Newcastle and he was a Sunderland fan and he kept in touch with Charlie Ferguson kept badgering him to look at me so what Charlie did he offered me schoolboy forms for that one year while I was taking some more GCSEs which meant I had to go um, and travel from the west end of Newcastle to the city centre of Newcastle, by bus this is, by the way, and then get a bus across to Sunland and walk down to Roker Park, a 20-minute walk. So it was nearly a two-hour journey after school Tuesday and Thursday nights. And if, if the school team didn't play on the Saturday, I'd get an opportunity to play for the youth team um, at Sunland. Well, then, um, your first major success came, in, came at Sunland with uh, the 1973 FA Cup. Um, that actually took you to Main Road as well. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, you go back to starting my book in 1955 when my dad had me on on his shoulders celebrating the the, the homecoming of the the Newcastle United 1955 FA Cup winning team. And it's amazing. Don Reavy played for Manchester City. Bob Stoker played for Newcastle. It's amazing how those four four elements played instrumental parts in my life. Bob Stoker, Don Reavy, Leeds, Manchester City, and Newcastle United. So you get the opportunity um, it, it, um, at Sunland, and we had a good side. Bob arrived in November, but we were second bottom of the second division, and it was amazing. In sort of four and a half months, we had 11,000 people coming watching at Roker Park. By sort of February, we, we nearly had 50,000 watching us. It was just a, a, an unbelievable um, turnaround of events. And we had a good t- side. Bob added a couple of new players, and then we met Manchester City. In the, uh, I think it was the fourth round or the fifth round. I can't recall now. I think it might have been the fifth round. And we had to come to uh, to Main Road, 
and obviously all their star-studded players were there. And we fantastic atmosphere. We nicked a two-two draw. You know, we played very well. In fact, we were leading, and it was only when Jim Montgomery pushed, uh, punched in across from Summerby, corner from Summerby, to give them a draw. But it was really the realization when we came back to Roker Park. Um, I mean, we as we were travelling back, we couldn't believe as we got back on the Saturday evening after the draw, the the queues round Roker Park were unbelievable. The queues were queuing for tickets, which were gonna, not going to be released until the Sunday morning. So Saturday evening, the queues round Roker Park had already begun, and apparently it was one of the coldest nights on record in the northeast. And all the burger bands, vans were out and made fortunes. <laughs> so it was amazing because it was just re- realization to us what was exactly happening at the, uh, with the club and the replay in, in the following Wednesday. And we knew then because the traditional draw on the Monday afternoon, um, the radio on the radio for the next round, we knew we played Luton Town if we'd beat Manchester City. So it really was a real big opportunity for us. And to be perfectly honest, we absolutely, we played really well. And we, not only did we win, we win 3-1, we win very well. And some of the qualities, and I've, I've got the DVD, and some of the qualities of our play and, uh, and our goals were just exceptional. What what did that game, what, what, what did those games against City affect your perception of uh, of Manchester City as a club? Well, at that time, you know, coming from um, from Newcastle, City had been from, I think, 69 to 71. They'd virtually won everything. Um, the League, the FA Cup, the Cup Winners Cup and the League Cup. You know, so they won virtually all the domestic trophies and, and the, uh, the Cup Winners Cup as well. So, uh, and Lee Bell, some of you were tantamount comparison with, with uh, uh, Law Best and Charlton at Man United. And Manchester... From my perception, living up the northeast was the centre of football, and certainly City, uh, after United's '68 European Cup win, were the resurgent club. And the way they played, the attractiveness, the open style, attacking football, was watched them. I had been following for quite some time. And then um, you signed for City uh, shortly after. Um, and what what was what was the attraction to the club? Uh, I think exactly that the, the, the way they play the football the passion uh, and the style of football um, I'd always been an attacking forward myself and um, I wanted to go into a team that sort of reflected my my way of playing and what I enjoyed also is the fact when I, when I came to Main Road was the passionate support that the City team had at Main Road it really was a, a fantastic football stadium and uh, that atmosphere that day in the drawn the drawn game was just it was, I just couldn't just couldn't understand understand it really. Well, you talk about the uh, the atmosphere. You were kind of thrown in at the deep end with your debut. With uh, it was a Manchester derby. Well, that was amazing because I came on the Monday, March the eleventh, which because Bob Stoke had promised me if I'd come off the transfer list and try and get this, the team spirit back at Sunderland, he'd let me go before the deadline. Um, which the deadline was the, those days was the Thursday. I think it was the second Thursday in March. With that, that was the March the fourteenth. So I signed on the Monday, March the eleventh. And then I didn't, I didn't realise at the time that there was a derby on the Wednesday, um, and Ron Saunders, who signed me, you know, just said you're playing on on Wednesday. Uh, so myself and Mickey Horsley also signed on that Monday. We were really thrown at the deep end, and it was uh, a typical Manchester derby. No frills, a lot of uh, commitment, and uh, Jim Holton, the centre half at United, and Mike Sumby, who was playing centre forward, was were bashing each other constantly through the game, and there was little skirmishes all over the pitch, and. Unfortunately, we had a referee called Clive, Clive Thomas, known as Clive the Book Thomas, who had not really appreciated what Manchester derbies were all about. And just before half-time, when Lou McCarry and Mike Doyle squared up to each other, you know, and, and 
Clive came over and just, just tried to send them off and everybody on the pitch, all the players were saying, Clive, this is a Manchester derby, these are normal things, you know, don't go and spoil the game. But So we tried to explain to him, but he wouldn't have it and he just marched both sets of players off the pitch. So we were off for about 10 minutes uh, and we had to come back on, obviously, and Mike Doyle and Lou McCarty had to remain in the dressing room. So it was just unbelievable. It happened all over the pitch and it ended nil-nil, but it was a packed house and the atmosphere is what I, what I, uh, what I wanted to experience. Who do you think was the most naturally gifted player that you played with over your career? Oh, I mean, I've been asked this a million times. You know, I have to say Franz Beckenbauer, who uh, who I played with in New York uh, for two years. You know, he's he's just he's just such a professional, such a um, perfectionist. Um, you know, the Franz must have been sort of nearly thirty-one, thirty-two when I went there. I was twenty-eight, and uh, he just wouldn't let anything drop. You know, it had to be perfect. Even in the uh, in the locker room when he was getting changed, he'd really jump in the shower, had a quick shave. He'd come in, he'd get a little box, open a little box on the on the uh, the uh, next to the the um, the basin, the wash basin, and out he'd bring a, a gold plate, a shaver, and shaving brush. <laughs> and I'd look at, oh come on, Franz, do me a favour. But he was just perfect. I mean, he wouldn't. Uh, and the one thing which which Franz used to get really annoyed about, and it's more apparent now in the modern day football, is possession of the ball. You know, he, he was going berserk if anybody lost possession cheaply because to get it back is a hard work. And then uh, 1976 was, uh, I think, yeah, the time you were most famous for, the uh, the, the League Cup final. Um, what do you remember of, of that goal? Well, the goal was, a, was and I, I've been mentioned this before, and in fact, I was Tony, to, talking to Tony Book just recently. Um, yeah, the goal was terrific, but no one really appreciates how good a goal the first goal was. And it was a, it was a well-worked um, free kick, and you know we had we knew Newcastle had a lot of big fellas, and what we did we had our big fellas, three of our big fellas at the back post for a free kick, and all of the three big fellas ran forward and took their markers out of the space, and Mike Doyle, who'd been standing on the, the edge of the box on the D, spun round and went to the back post, so he was on his own virtue. With, I think Alan Kenny ended up marking was, uh, and Mike won the head and knocked it back across, and then we had all the big fellas who'd. Uh, left the space with me and Peter Barnes to face the ball and as the ball came across Barnes he got the first goal so it worked a treat so we got off to a great start with a great great uh, set piece but I was pleased about that as well but obviously just after half time and uh, it's a goal which you know I was I was always pretty good at volleying always been pretty good at volleying and um, scored a couple of overhead kicks or side volley kicks scissors kicks for Sunderland and um it was probably the 46th minute and, and so many people have, have told me, first and foremost, um, our supporters, the Man City supporters, were at the far end. And at Wembley, if everybody recalls, there was a running track around it. So to be at the far end, you know, you could hardly see it to start with. And maybe many people have said, well, they didn't really know how I'd scored or what I scored because they couldn't, they were so far away, they couldn't, they couldn't get a, a good view of it. And another load of people have said, well, because the, the facilities at Wembley weren't the best, um, either at the toilet or getting a cup of bovril or a pie in the shops um, during half time and it was the 46th minute they busy making their way back t- to, the, to watch the game but it was a great move you know it's, um, we gained possession Joe Royal got possession in the midfield and at the time John, uh, Colin Bella got injured in an earlier round game against uh, Man United when we beat Man United 4-0 and um, Tommy Booth replaced him and Tommy was fantastic he was probably as a centre half he was one of the best standing jumpers I've ever seen fantastic timing and he was playing right side midfield. So he won the ball in midfield and uh, Joe Royal knocked it to Alan Oakes who, who gave it to, to Willie Donicky, who Willie was always marauding down the left side you know, and great left peg for crosses. 
and um, he went down the left, and I just took myself into the box looking for a cross, but as Willie drifted the cross in, uh, he went right to the far post, and fortunately, big Tommy had drifted around to the back post, and as it went over my head, I just spun round uh, looking for knockbacks, and it sort of the ball went slightly behind Tommy, and he sort of got his head onto it, but I'd gone in too far as well because he didn't get a, the best contact on it directional-wise. And as the ball came to me, it was behind me. You know, and I've had this conversation with Dennis Law before, you know, as a, as a goal scorer, you don't care how what part of your body you get onto the ball as it comes into, in, into the box, you just go for it. And, and because from an athletic point of view, I'd been, I'd, I used to do the volleys and the overheads before, you just, have a, you just go for it. I mean, you, you, you sort of um, put yourself under a little bit of pressure and it just worked perfectly and uh, it went in right nicely. And it was the beauty about it was it was the winning goal. So at the end of the game, you know it's, it's a winning goal. You've won a major trophy for your club, for your team, for your supporters. And that means the most, really. What, what was it like doing it against the club you supported as a boy? Well, that made it extra special. You know, and I've said this conversation before. My, my brother, who was six years younger than me, you know, he he couldn't go downtown for six months after I scored that goal. You know, because I was living in Manchester and he was still in Newcastle, you know, and there was rumours about my mum having her um, uh, windows broken and all sorts of rumours going around Newcastle, but it wasn't, wasn't true. But he did, uh, he did have a little bit of a traumatic few months. But it was against my hometown team. And I think if you look at the records, I've always done well against Newcastle and Sunderland. Strange enough, I may just get that, that uh, sort of desire and that um, challenge to do to do something for because they were the team that let you go or re- rejected in the first place. Now, unfortunately, that trophy was City's last until last season. Um, and you described the goal by uh, Yaya Toure as, uh, as a monkey off your back. Um, why, why, why was that? Well, because Manchester City, and I, and I know because I've been involved with the cl- club since 1974, uh, it's certainly a top three club, no question. Manchester City, is, it's big enough, it's got one of the things which... Any, each, when I was a director, the managers knew coming in what the, man, the club had was a fantastic supporter base. Uh, and once you've got a great supporter base, because between 1974 and 78, I was president of the Junior Blues at Manchester City and worked hard uh, on, the, on, the youth, on the youth support. And once you get your youth as a support of your, t- of your, of your club, they stay, you've got them for life. So I knew we had a good foundational base. Um, and, and that's, that's desperately important. Um, when Yaya got that goal, I was, crikey, for goodness sake, this club's big enough to be in the top three. It should be in the top three. And I never thought it would be 35 years before Manchester City won a trophy again. I thought 76 was just the next stage of the ongoing success of Manchester City. And then um, shortly after your time with City, you moved uh, over to uh, New York and, uh, and the Cosmos there. Um, I, I read a story about you having to explain cricket to Franz Beckenbauer. Oh, what a challenge that was. Well, when I went over, because obviously the, uh, the North American Soccer League was a, a summer season. So we went and got together around about February, March for our pre-season training. Well, if anybody knows New York at all, the weather in February, March in New York can be awful. So to give us a, an opportunity, we, uh, they took us to Bermuda for pre-season training. So we went there and we're just travelling to the training ground one morning. I'm sat next to Franz on the, on the coach and we passed the school and they were playing cricket. Well, Franz had been in, in New York by about 18 months then and he'd watched baseball. You know, he'd followed baseball and obviously not much cricket in Germany, that's for sure. And so you understand a little bit about baseball. So he said, oh, yeah, what, what, what's this all about? Then? So I tried to explain cricket to Franz Beckham, my German. What a, a nightmare. Why is it two, two pitches? Why, why, why is the pitcher only bowling? 
six balls? Why did the two batters exchange ends? Why, if if there's, I think you asked, why if there's eleven in the team, if there's ten out, you're all out? Oh, I was I was punch drunk by after about half an hour. Said France, believe me, it works in England. And it was um, at New York where you met uh, Carlos Alberto. Um, just explain a little bit about uh, your friendship with him. Well, Carlos, again, you know, um, Carlos and Franz were two uh, world sporting icons. It was a pleasure to be part of them. And what, what I, what I took, took from them was the fact that, you know, even though the age they were, and Carlos was probably 33, 34 maybe, was the fact that they never lost a desire to be successful. I mean, Carlos was, was off the pitch. He was gentlemen who were fun loving on the pitches kick his granny on the pitch to win the game I mean it was frightening and that's something you have to learn and pick up from, from the best um, and we got on very well and uh, and they just wanted to win and, I, and I'm, I'm the same you know you just want to win and you have arguments you have fights on the pitch you, but you're driving each other forward and uh, I remember we had a had a um, his birthday party and uh, he lived in a, an apartment in Third Avenue in Manhattan and they had a a, a swimming pool on the on the roof rooftop swimming pool and sauna and patio area and that's where the party was going to be around the pool and his wife suggested they might be end up in the pool you might end up in the swimming pool you know so I thought yeah okay so I've got my my, sh- my swim trunks on underneath, underneath my trousers I go up there and Pele comes in Pele's dressed in a, an all white suit and all of a sudden all the guys grab a hold of Pele and they're going to throw him in the pool he says Pele the greatest footballer in the world he's going to go in the pool he's going to get dunked and uh, but he says no 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 quickly, we had to take his gold watch off. He, he insists on taking his gold watch off. And anyway, the lads didn't didn't film in the pool. It was a bit of a, a joke. But some of us ended up in the pool, and then ended up in the sauna, um, drying off before we had a uh, drink at the party. And I said to Carlos, I said, you know, Carlos, I said, uh, great, you know, it's a fantastic party. He said, blah blah. I says, um, you are such a relaxed off the pitch, you know, and you enjoy a laugh. And I says, but on the pitch, you know, you really you, you, you focus. He says, Dennis, and he, I always remember what he said to me. He said, Dennis, but ah, but when the whistle blows, and I knew exactly what it meant, which means there's a time and place for everything, but you've got to be full on when it's when it's the time, the right time, the right place, and it, to be a winner, you've got to, no distractions. What did you make of football in the States at that time? It was difficult um, because they were trying to go too, too big too quick. Um, they didn't have the foundational... Um, youth development that we we have here in in Europe and um, that's where the big problem was and uh, the Cosmos were throwing money at us and we were best paid players in the the country and in Europe probably by that Um, they just grew too quickly and what happened then a bit similar to what Premier League is now but the Premier League have got a bit more um, support a bit more foundational um, backup in in sponsorship Um, the rest of the clubs try to chase the Cosmos try to throw money I think early on, the cost of a franchise in the NASL was $25,000. After about three or four years, it was $3 million. You know, so the, the owners had to put $3 million up to purchase a franchise. So you can imagine, and therefore, the, the, they tried to increase the quality. Then more franchises came in. And therefore, instead of having 16 teams, you had 24 teams. Well, there wasn't enough quality to go around. And therefore, the whole level of quality dropped. Um, and then constantly the money that major businesses were putting into the uh, the various clubs, there was getting, they were getting no return because the tendencies were dropping, the quality was dropping. And the, the main thing which the, the, they couldn't get permanently was a television contract. I mean, you know, we have the premiership now. If it wasn't for the Sky television contract, you know, football wouldn't be as... Uh, premiership football wouldn't be as global as it is now. 
but we couldn't get it in America. They couldn't get a television contract, and it was difficult because it was it was in the summer season. Uh, we didn't have the infrastructure, um, i.e., stadiums, dedicated football stadiums. We were playing sometimes on baseball stadiums and American football stadiums, uh, and the weather it was so warm. I mean, the humidity where we were in New York, first part of the season, sort of start about April time when the season started, we'd be kicking off at two thirty Sunday afternoon at home. But as you went further into the summer, because the humidity was like up in the high 80s, early to lower 90s, uh, we'd then start and kick off at 7:30 or even nine o'clock on a Sunday night. So it was a little bit, it was a little bit had, had its uh, difficult times and, and lots of different challenges. But I think you know, under the circumstances, it was if it'd gone a bit slower, a bit more like the MLS is now, with a bit more controlled strategy. I still think there was an opportunity. And then uh, you move back to City. There's uh, there's there's a famous kind of uh, mantra of of never go back. Um, how where do you stand on that? Well, it depends if you've got something to offer. I'm a great believer. I would never do anything if I don't if I can't offer something. You know, if I don't think I can make an impact somehow or affect something, I don't do it. Whether it's in my life or my business or my football. Um, and I felt there was an opportunity. And, and when it came about, um, Peter Swells was very interested. And I said to Peter, I said, I don't mind coming back. I says, but. I need to speak to Malcolm Allison. I'm, I think Malcolm has a terrific coach and I'd love to have the opportunity to work with Malcolm. But I don't want you telling Malcolm, sign Dennis Stewart. I want Malcolm to tell you, let's sign Dennis Stewart. So I asked him for a meeting with Malcolm. And uh, Malcolm came I had a, an apartment in Bowden at the time. And we sat down and uh, explained where I was coming from. And, I, and I, I think Malcolm was quite taken back by my forthright comments because I, d- I said, I don't want to come back here if I'm wasting my time. If I don't want to come, I'm wasting your time or the club's time. You know, you, I need to have a coach that I can relate to. I need to have a coach who understands me and gets the best uh, what I've got to offer. And I think he was quite pleased with that. And uh, we got chatting about the fact that he brought a lot of youngsters in. I think if all the City fans remember, he turned the club, he turned the players over from the time I left. So we had all about 10 internationals in the time when I went to New York. When I came back, it was like a crash. He had all young players and then young, immature, naive young players and probably try to change the club in reflection tried to change the club too quickly um, but he said he wanted me to work with one or two of the young players and help them and I was quite happy with that and when you were back at City you were you you uh, you, you got a, quite a bad uh, Achilles injury um, how, how did that affect you how, do, how were you able to deal with that at the time well I think it's there's, there's, a, there's a whole period which, which when I reflect um, from 1973 to 1980 my life was in the ascendancy, totally. Um, I was in that that surreal football bubble, financially earning pl- lots of money, adulation, success. And then when I came back in 1980, you know, unfortunately, my, my father was was ill with cancer. His brother had died at 49 with cancer. I uh, lost two aunties a bit early with cancer. Um, and then my brother had, was diagnosed with a tumour behind his nose. Thankfully, he's survived and is still with us today. And then... My wife was pregnant, had a baby in 1980, had another baby in 82. And at the end of 82, November, I ruptured my Achilles tendon. So therefore, within a couple of years, you've gone from that surreal, unreal um, football bubble to real life. Uh, and therefore, you've got to, you've got to stand up as a person. Um, and it was a challenge to me, certainly, because I was out for nine months. Uh, not only that, but Malcolm Allison had gone. John Bunn had come in. And at one stage, we'd fallen out. John Bond didn't think I could offer anything. But then John and Fennis put me into a, 
an attacking midfield role. And just before I ruptured my Achilles tendon, I was in the best run of my career. I'd played 17 games and scored 11 goals from an attacking midfield position, which was the best run of my career. So I was really flying high, and all of a sudden, again, you know, traumatic uh, Achilles tendon injury. I was up for nine months, came back, um, never quite the same, you know, and then you think to yourself, I got myself into business, and so it was a difficult time at that time. What was it, it like having to kind of carry on playing after the injury? Was it, were, you, were you always unsure that, you would, that your leg would hold out, that sort of thing? We just had to work very hard on the rehabilitation side. I mean, nine months, you know, I was six months in a, in a full plaster from, from ankle to, to a thigh, and then uh, three weeks from a shortened plaster. So nine weeks I was in plaster. And it was, you, you did things like, you know, to try and keep yourself in, in shape. You know, every, when I was at home with plaster, every odd hour during the day, I'd go on the floor and do some sit-ups and some press-ups. Uh, my wife, she would have... Uh, I made her put my meals on three-quarter-size plates so I wouldn't put too much weight on. I made, she made a big bowl of natural yoghurt uh, with fruit in it, so that would be my dessert, so to control my body, um, just to try and give myself the best chance of rehabilitation because I was asked by my advisor, a chap called Ruben Kay, who was my... Advisor from the age of from the age of twenty five when I came to, just after I came to Manchester City, uh, who was Bobby Charlton's mentor, great man, uh, an accountant, but more than an accountant, an advisor. Looked after him when I went to New York. Um, he'd actually approached me and he said, "Well, Dennis, what do you think?" He said, "Because you know, if you don't think you can play to the level that you want to, he says, you know, we, we've got to look at insurance situations here, uh, retirement and insurance." And I don't know what what it is about me, but I think when there's a challenge, you know, I tend to go the other way. Yeah, I tend not to duck out. I tend to go head on. And I said, no. I says, you know, I've got to prove to myself that I can still play. And I, I still think, I, I believe I can play. So, yeah, you understand where I was coming from. And um, I just had a go. And I didn't do too bad. You know, it was it was okay. I still got into the goals. And it was just unfortunate at the end of that 83 season, City got relegated. With that infamous uh, Luton, Luton game when David played dancing across the pitch. And I could have punched him myself. I know there was. Uh, I know there certainly know a lot of fans that could have uh, could have punched in themselves as well. They were. Uh, they, there was. Uh, I, I'd have been there first, believe me. There's, uh, there was a bad vibe around uh, around Pleat at that well, time. The, the, the sad thing about it because I'd spoken to Peter Swells about because my contract was. I was the only one in the first team squad whose contract was finished, and I'd agreed in principle with Peter Swells a new one year contract, provided we stayed up. So not only did we get relegated, I knew the fact that we did get relegated. I was leaving the club, and you know that was a difficult time as well. Well, then uh, you, you started watching City again in the uh, in the 90s. Um, just tell me a bit about uh, why that came about. Yeah, well, I've, I've had a, my business. There was conference production and, and hospitality, and uh, um, City just built the, the new stand behind the Platte Lane stand, and they had balconies, and they were very good. And hospitality at that side, companies, corporate hospitality was becoming big business, and that was integrated a part of my business as well as conference production and product launches. And uh, uh, so we decided to buy, to take an executive box, uh, I'd been watching before, just but again, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Uh, uh, I wasn't in the corporate areas, and because I don't like gossiping and and former pros coming back and backbiting the, the manager, the current regime, and all I used to say to Bernard Hall for the secretary was, "Bernard, just get me one ticket, one car park pass. I'll come in for the game, and I'll go home after the game. I don't want to be involved in any, you know, little clicks or gossips." And the, and the manager, the club must move on, and I don't want people saying, "Oh, I wish you were back, Dennis, and you should be here. What would you think about that?" And, that's the, you know, I can't do anything about that, you know. And so that's what I used to do. But then the, I took the box on, and virtually every game I was there. 
And then um, you you joined the board with uh, when uh, Franny Lee took over. Well, that was a strange one because I was in I was in my box at the game, and uh, the commercial manager Jeff Durbin from um, City at the time came to me and said, "Would you pop downstairs and, and speak to John Wardle and David Macon, who own JD Sports, uh, big City fans, great people." And um, uh, I'd met them before because I did a um, in 1996 I did an anniversary dinner, 20 years of the '76 team, and uh, I'd met John and I spoke to John. Because what I wanted to do, I wanted to produce a video uh, of the of the cup run to show as part of the evening. And John sponsored it, JD Sports sponsored it, which was terrific. So I'd met him then. I'd also met David making on, on one or two other occasions. And uh, when I went down to see them in their box, they were just on the on the level below me at Platt Lane then. And they asked me if I'd be their nominee on the board. I said, what? You know, it was come right off, off, off left field. And... Uh, Oh, I said I need this to think about this, you know, because I'd I was had three businesses at the time. I had Premier Events, which is my uh, conference production corporate hospitality business. I had a pro- small property company called MLJ Properties, named after my, my three boys, Mark, Lee, and John. Uh, and I had Dennis Chua Travel, which is, is an incentive travel and tra- in, in retail travel business, which I bought off a very good friend and and a big city fan, Jack Pritchard, and uh, bought his business off him, and he was managing it for me. But I was sort of the I was still running it uh, with with Jack. Jack was hands on day to day, and I, and, uh, and we discussed. So I had three businesses and uh, had th- two young children, or three young children. One was just one had just been born, and um, it was a decision I had to make because did I sacrifice the development of business because Premier Events, which is my main business, really need a little bit more um, development. I could I'd, I'd gone as far as I could the way the structure that I had. I needed to sort of develop it. But the, the draw, I guess the draw of Manchester City, and I did speak to my wife, Joan, and, and uh, the boys hadn't got a clue about it, so it kept it very very confidential with my wife. We discussed it, and she was very, very supportive. So uh, I went back to John, spoke to him about it, what do you, what do you need me to do? And, um, so, yeah, I'll have a go. Um, but it wasn't exactly plain sailing for City as, uh, through, the, through the late 90s and, and early 2000s. There was a, there, there was a period of, of uh, what can well, mainly be described as turmoil, once David Bernstein uh, became chairman, you know, John Wardle had asked me to become uh, a bit more involved uh, from my first uh, position within the club. Um, and we knew what we had to do. The finances were in an awful state. Um, the, the club had been, was being run like a, a corner shop. Good people in there, but people who were able to run a corner shop. And we wanted to drive it forward. It's, as I said, way in the early part of the, uh, the interview, Manchester City is a top three club, top three of the top division club. Not in the second division, or the, the championship, as we know it now. Um, so we had a look. It was a root and branch clean, clean out, and there was going to be a lot of hard decisions to be made. But um, therefore, once we got the right board together, and we did it for the first few years, it was we got the thing on a, on a sound footing. We got the thing run efficiently, and a lot of the organisers, a lot of the the, the various um, departments. Brought different people in to do different things, which are capable of taking us to the next level. What was the situation like um, in the, between the transition between Kevin Keegan and Stuart Pearce? Uh, it was a strange one because I knew Kevin, and Kevin, I've known Kevin since nineteen seventy-five, and he'd always said to me then that you'd never stay longer than five years. So when uh, he signed his contract for Manchester City, it was a, I think it was either four or five-year contract. Um, and t- one time, when we the first couple of years, when David Bernstein uh, saw how well we were doing, and he came to me, we said, "Oh, we should talk to Kevin about extending his contract." I said, "David, he won't. Kevin knows what he can do. Kevin was a short-term, short-term um, motivator, 
and that's what we needed at the time. You know, Joe got relegated back down to the, to the first division, and we had financially, because we we backed uh, people in the in the market financially, very similar to when we got relegated to the second division. We had one year to get out, otherwise it'd be literally a fire sale. We'd have to start selling players because the finances wouldn't take two years at the, at the second division, and then after the Premiership in the first division. So we had one more year to get out, and we needed someone to move us fast. And then Kevin done that, and then Kevin got to a level where Kevin needs to churn players. He knows himself. If you look at his record, he needs to buy players, move them on. And and we didn't have any more money to churn for Kevin. He had a, a disappointing season. He lost his right hand man, who uh, Arthur Cox, who left uh, through retirement. And uh, you know he knew, and I know he knew, and I spoke to him, and that he, he his time would come to an end. He done he done what he could, and he'd be remembered extremely well for what he'd achieved the first division the way we got promoted and the first year in the in the, the premiership it was terrific um, the style of football uh, was just what Manchester City was all about and then when Stuart Pearce um, uh, when Kevin left Stuart, we gave Stuart the interim job from the February I think it was just to uh, see get us to the end of the season because you know rules and regulations you can't approach any um, other clubs manager without approval from the chairman it was, so we said let's look at Stuart and, but Kevin did have reservations about Stuart being a, being a manager because I'd seen him work as a coach and, and Stuart as, as anybody would admit was very intense and sometimes that's not the ideal um, characteristic to have as a manager you've got to be a bit more relaxed a bit more um, understanding of and managing of people um, and as it happens nearly to the end of the season Nelly's got, Nelly got his in Europe if Robbie Fowler hadn't missed the penalty in the last game of the season against Middlesbrough, we would have been in Europe. So that would have been a real, a real boost. So we decided to give, because the response from the support has been fantastic, we decided to give Stuart the, the head coach's job. Um, do you think uh, Stuart was a bit naive when it came to, to management because it was maybe his first job? Yeah, in, in retrospect, it was a short-term effect. That that, that nine games, you know, he did very well. But then, when you become a manager, then you've got to have a recruitment policy, and you've got to be able to identify, understand why, use your use your, your finances uh, extremely well, um, and then when you buy the people in, and then manage them. And 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 Stuart was a little bit naive in in, in respect of that, yeah. Um, then at the end of of Stuart's time with City, there was uh, the whole takeover with uh, Taxi Sinawatra at the time. Um, one key incident of that uh, of that kind of t- kind of period jumped out at me from the book, um, and it was uh, a resignation letter by email. Um, yeah. how, how did that make you feel? Yeah, well, I think it's a bit, bit of a background to that because leading up to that time, the, the the dynamics of the board had changed. You know, the one thing I'd always maintained that we need in the board was stability, unity, and team spirit. There's a and from a business, from a complex production business, when I've been dealing with PLCs and major companies. That's the thing you have to have in your in your organisation. If you've got a good quality product on the back of that, you've really got a chance of making things fly. Uh, but the basic stability, unity, and team spirit—we had that. And the the last eighteen months hadn't happened. People were starting to look at other things. There was there was executives who, in my view, were only after what they wanted for themselves. They didn't see the big picture. They were just purely looking at their own personal development rather than develop, developing the football club. And to be perf- to be perfectly frank, I was excluded. Uh, well, marginalised and excluded from some football discussions. I just couldn't. That's not my scene. So I knew I was quite. I'd done my bit. Uh, we had a fantastic run. We got the club with a profile. We we got them at the fantastic result of Wembley with the Gillingham game. We got them promoted with Joe. We got them promoted again with Kevin, and just lifted the whole profile of the club uh, and give the, give whoever came in a good foundation. And we needed 
more financial investment. Uh, and I'd said to uh, to one of my co-directors, I said, you know, because there was a rec- there was um, mentioned the paper that uh, if Tax and Shinawa took over, that he'd be bringing his own board in, and and I'd be excluded. And uh, and and I said, I haven't got a problem with that. You know, um, I've done my bit, um, achieved an awful lot for the fans and for the club, and I was quite happy for someone to come in because the club it desperately needed investment. Um, John and David's investment has been fantastic in saving the club and a lot of other things that, with Jim Cassell's academy management. I mean, what Jim did in the academy was just unrecognisable by comparison to other clubs. And um, we had a good foundation to work on, but we needed investment at the top end. So I was quite happy to step down. But uh, I felt uh, uh, when when you get your resignation letter by email, oh, that's a coward. That's cowardice. 